Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett, and this is science for people who give a shit. Uh, folks, there's a lot going on out there. Our world's changing, being changed every single day. Seems like it's going faster every single day. There's good news, though. You can take part in that change. You can affect that change. So I talk to the smartest, most impactful people on the planet to provide you with the inspiration and the tools you need to not only feel better, but to actively fight for a better future for everyone. My guests are scientists and doctors, uh, policymakers, activists, uh, investors, business leaders, doctors, nurses, astronauts, even a reverend. So if you want to be inspired, if you want to find out how to make radical change, what you can do, hit the subscribe button right now to get even more conversations like this one, stories, and tools. You can also go backwards, scroll through the feed, or you can go to podcast.importantnotimportant.com to find almost 130 evergreen conversations covering everything from clean energy to uh, cancer and artificial intelligence to regenerative agriculture. In this week's conversation, what I wanted to do and, and we're going to try to do is to better understand data privacy data stewardship, and what it actually means for indigenous cultures in the future of biotech. Questions like, how do we design equity and equitable benefit into genetic research? And who gets to decide the parameters of the data collection and the research done on that data and whatever else comes from it? And why do we consistently find cooperation on these fronts so difficult? What does the future of precision medicine hold when we haven't done the hard work of tearing down the systemic barriers to wellness and more. My guest is Crystal Sozi, and I just want to say up front here how thankful I am for her time today. I learned so much, and I know that you will too. A reminder, you can send questions, feedback, or guest recommendations to me on Twitter at importantnotimp, or you can email me at questions at importantnotimportant.com. My guest today is Crystal Sosi, and together we're going to explore a bunch of stuff. Uh, what biological data sovereignty means uh, in context of uh, the United States, in context of the hugely varied, um, I, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, which I hope you do the whole time, like 570-ish Native American tribes across the continental U.S. Uh, it is hopefully going to be a conversation uh, about the future. Uh, which is coming fast, and the past all at once. So low bar. Um, we're already losing Crystal. This is perfect. Crystal, welcome. <laughs> Hi, thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here. Uh, well, we'll see what, how, how that goes. You can judge that at the end. Um, my, my caffeination status hopefully will remain constant for the rest of the hour, sure, but sure, no sure. promises. What is your go-to if you're like, I got to be on for an hour? Uh, what is your mechanism for getting ready? Oh, um, so French press coffee. Mm -hmm. Ooh, um, I'm not quite. I'm not quite as bougie as pour over, although I want to sure, be. Sure. I just don't have a gooseneck kettle. Uh -huh. um, and then um, I'll make a pot of that and then um, ice it. And then I actually do the thing where I'll uh, freeze leftover coffee into an ice cube tray. That way, 
That way, when the ice melts, it doesn't dilute your coffee and actually will contribute <sighs> more caffeine uh, as the day goes on. You are nothing if not a scientist. That is amazing. Um, a friend, uh, one of my best friends, who's we're going to actually possibly talk about his dad. It's a whole thing. Um, he taught me, uh, you, do you know what uh, pesto is? It's like sort of, uh, it's an Italian sort of sauce. It's like a pine nuts and anyways. Uh a lot of garlic. Yes. Yeah, a lot of garlic. And basil, <laughs> his thing was you make it, you put it in the ice cube trays, but so it doesn't go rancid. You put olive oil on the top and then same thing, you pop it out and you've got fresh pesto. It's amazing. But yours is for coffee. I got to teach that to my wife. Her heart does not start beating until I hand her coffee in the morning. So um, <laughs> okay. I know it's just. Well, I mean, great that her heart eventually gets going. Eventually, but, but what, but what happens trip. if I forget to bring it if the kids are bothering? Who can know? She just doesn't wake up. <gasps> Amazing. Uh, don't make this don't make this uh, recording available uh, to any law enforcement agencies um, or any yeah, insurance. Yeah, hundred percent. We're just going to take all this out, <laughs> Crystal. If you could, real quick, tell the people who you are and what it is that you do. Wow. Okay, that's a lot. Uh, so, yeah, everyone. She eknich ini neshlito na kaida na epashchin torichini dashchedo kisalana dashnala Crystal says initia. I basically just told you in Diné or Navajo language, everyone that I am related to, all my ancestors um, on both sides of my family, and then, of course, introduced myself. And then in terms of who I identify, how I identify, first of all, like first and foremost, I'm, a, I'm, I'm Indigenous to the U.S., Southwestern region, uh, particularly the Navajo Nation. And then after that, I am a geneticist and also a bioethicist. I have um, backgrounds in, in bioethics and also in genetic epidemiology and public health. And I'm finishing my PhD at uh, Vanderbilt University in genomics and health disparities. I'm actually transitioning to a faculty appointment as assistant professor at Arizona State University, where I'll be the first uh, Indigenous geneticist at that institution. And then also, on top of all that, I'm co-founder and also ethics and policy director at the Native Biodata Consortium, which is the first Indigenous-led biological and data repository for tribes in the U.S. Crystal, I'm exhausted every day, and I have a podcast. You've got like 40 impactful and important things you're doing every day. That's incredible. Thanks. Uh, when you're not, when there aren't that many indigenous peoples in the sciences, though, you you tend to wear a lot of hats, um, especially in genetics. Okay. There is just so much going on in the world and in science and technology related to genetics, genomics, uh, the collective the collectivization of data sure. um, and data privacy and ethics. Uh, it's just it's a t- fascinating time to be in. Very scary, but fascinating. Hundred percent, hundred percent. I mean, I think that's kind of the 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 ethos of, of hopefully what our conversation is uh, today for sure, which is like, it is a heck of a moment uh, for all of those things. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. We usually start with one important question. Again, I'm not sure if you've listened to any other uh, episodes or not. It's a, it's a pretty, uh, I think the, you could use the word preposterous question for sure. It's, it's both sincere, but also completely tongue in cheek. So answer however you would prefer or tell me to go away. And the question is, Crystal, why are you vital to the survival of the species? Well, am I actually? Great question. <laughs> oh, there's an underlying premise there that I am, Not right? Necessarily. Um, before I can answer why. Most people just laugh at me, but please continue. Can I assume that you've seen the movie Idiocracy? Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay, so if we want to assume that 
I at least uh, provide societal benefit. And, um, you know, now that I have survived past my adolescence years, I, I know that I don't make ridiculously dumb decisions related to my own welfare and well-being, that maybe I do have some beneficial traits that could serve for the continued propagation of the species. However, I don't want that responsibility. That That's no, I, I don't feel like being pregnant in perpetuity. Um, no. <laughs> but have somebody else have that responsibility. Yeah. Um, I love that answer. Thank you. That might be our first idiocracy reference, which is actually kind of surprising. Uh, boy, there's, does that does that one hold true these days? Awesome. Thank you uh, so much for, for sharing that. All right. So, Crystal, like I said before, I, I just want to, uh, for a brief moment, explain why I wanted to have this uh, conversation today. So... You know, my wife lovingly describes this as my my climate change podcast, as she puts it onto people's phones. And, but that's only, you know, it's it's a large part of what we do because it touches so many different things, especially these days. Um, but we do talk about a lot of big systemic issues and questions here, um, as we kind of call it, the, the make or break stuff. And, and many of the big issues, when you really drill down, which we, we try to do from air pollution to uh, clean water or maternal health, or the lack of black doctors and nurses to climate investing or AI ethics, right? Biotech. I've increasingly found, and this is obvious to people who've been doing this for a while, but it's increasingly more obvious and necessary to me to 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 work on this level, but there, there are these common denominators, right? It's not really about the, the medical outcome or an algorithm, a particular algorithm, uh, or some mutual fund return or a data set or water pipe or some deep sea minerals that we need for electric batteries, right? Um, just like it's not, it's not really about like who you see or don't see like up on the screen in the Disney movie, right? The underlying factors behind all of them, I, I guess it's one, but it's sort of twofold is who is in the room writing and building these things? Who governs them? And, and most specifically in, in the American case, who benefits from each of these things? From water pipes that uh, deliver clean water or not, or a, a lack of representation in the medical field or or air pollution, plastic factories, whatever, right? And and I, I, I want to be fully transparent that this, this recognition of this piece of the puzzle, if not the puzzle itself, uh, I feel like I can tread in this water because I'm a liberal arts major who loves to ask questions, uh, but but no, there's no question that the the practical investigation of it and the exploration of it is was delayed in both in my life and, and I guess in this show because of a huge amount of privilege. I, I cannot, you know, really change where, where I'm from or what I look like, but it's all born from this colonialism, obviously. I, I'm literally from colonial Williamsburg, right? But it has made me reevaluate who I talk to and, and how I listen to them and then in examining this this moment and and the work that we do and any analysis or action steps. And so as we barrel into, like you were talking about, this this wildly sort of exciting but uncertain future, biotech and, and what we do in biology and, and who gets to do it and who gets to profit from it. And same thing for AI, right? They really linger as these two sectors that could get out of hand real fast unless we approach them in a way more inclusive and cooperative way. So when I learned about your work, uh, which is, again, like 12 different things, it was very clear that it was necessary to have at least at least one conversation because I feel like I still have just so much to learn about this space and, and from you. So I, again, I do want to thank you in advance for sharing 
your incredibly precious uh, caffeinated time with with me and the folks out there. Crystal, I actually wanted to start, uh, if we could, go back just a little bit and talk about preeclampsia. So my mom, before she had me, there's four and a half years between my older brother and me. Um, they lost a baby pretty late in between us, which is why there's that gap because of preeclampsia. And any sort of miscarriages, <clears throat> super rough. I, I, I'm, I'm just a man in, in my own family. And, and the few that my wife and I suffered through were just brutal and obviously so much worse for her. When that happened to my parents, it was math to carry one, 1980 or so. There's no internet. There's no real genetic testing, but still their, their doctor, who's now my, my best friend's father, trudged through a snowstorm with his medical textbooks right to their house to explain, hey, here's what happened. And it doesn't mean you're never going to have another kid as painful as it was. But 40-ish years later, millions of people in America, however you identify, don't get anything remotely close to that kind of attention from the medical industry or from their own doctors, right? We're, we're aware of that. Much less women and, and, and women of color. And we talked about that with uh, Representative Underwood in episode 106 about Black maternal health and Serafina Nance and Dr. Elizabeth Russo about birth control. Crystal, why did you choose for your dissertation to investigate the impact of, of PE, if we can call it that, on uh, American Indian women? Why did you start there with everything else you've got going on? Well, Actually, I didn't start there. I started with an even more broad question as to why Indigenous peoples generally don't participate in genetic studies. Okay. And it just so happened that one of the longest ongoing genetic studies in a U.S. Indigenous community happens to be on preeclampsia. All right. So actually, can we go back a little bit further in my story? To be clear, uh, so you're my in mother. Charge. Cool. So I actually started, uh, it's really horrible to start this, this, this question that is truly impactful with unfortunately a very egocentric question or self-centric question about my own career in, in genetics as, as an indigenous person. But if we go back even like a decade prior to when I actually started doing preeclampsia work, my intent and purpose was actually to become a cancer researcher. And I actually was pretty successful in as an undergraduate post-baccalaureate researcher in that I had a couple patents related to um, um, microbiology or micro um, so you've heard of na nanotech well I've done like micro um, scale uh, solutions to uh, targeted chemotherapeutics and I really wanted to go into cancer biology even went to Hopkins University I had my own pick of any institution in the world and I hated it because wow. you know the field of cancer biology is not only oversaturated but I was witness to uh, scientists that were basically having um, an ego me measuring contest as to how many drug patents they had in their wall. And when we think about cancer biology and what drives a, a lot of the research, it's, you know, money and it is drug innovations that relate to the FDA. And I just had this, this sickening feeling um, that you know, even if I were to be successful in developing a, you know, a cancer therapeutic that chances are it would probably benefit 
you know, people that were already affluent, who had already had access to um, adequate re- health uh, care resources. And it wouldn't be my own people, the Native people that I grew up with, which were living in rural communities and relying on the Indian health services for their for their health care and not really getting access to like the top tier drugs uh, unless they were paying for it out of pocket at exorbitant rates. Right. And I just had this sickening feeling of what am I doing as a Native person in the field of cancer biology if I'm not going to be benefiting my own people? And that actually led me back to back to grad school for my first master's in ethics because in bioethics because I actually wanted to switch to a, a career in law. And then this is where I, I started learning more about genetic controversies related to indigenous participation in genetic studies and all of these different lawsuits and controversies in which indigenous peoples felt like they were being exploited for the genomic data, you know, for the quote, good, greater good of society and research. Um, but the research wouldn't be beneficial to them. And then, you know, I could already see the writing on the wall, even like 10 years ago, that there's going to be this huge emergence and rush for the collectivization of genetic data across all data sets. And Indigenous peoples will still, unfortunately, continue to be disenfranchised unless we had more Indigenous geneticists in the field advocating for the communities. So I actually came to uh, Vanderbilt University because it had like the the uh, it had like the perfect breeding ground for the skills that I wanted to 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 gain, which was in epidemiology and data science and and um, looking at genetic data sets for like conditions that had like broad scale health diverse disparities. And I actually centered on a, a research lab that focused on uterine fibroids in African American women. And the uterine fibroids is a benign tumor that um, is increasingly prevalent in in African-American women and there's a huge disparity and it's like its prevalence is I think at least four to one for every for every uh, woman of a European ancestry uh, four women of African ancestry will have um, a uterine fibroid at some point in her life and it's like wow. something that's of huge uh, medical concern because it's costly to treat sure. um, and it, it is related to all these different maternal and child outcomes when when a woman is pregnant with with uterine fibroids and is just something that is really speaks to almost the erasure of an invisibility of women of color in terms of seeking uh, general medical care for what you know is usually been unfortunately uh, ignored uh, there's been a huge amount of criticism in that we have this wealth of understanding of of conditions and an uh, understanding of disease related to men's health but not women's health so anyway, as I'm like sitting in my computer, like my desk at a computer terminal, like looking across all these genome-wide uh, data sets with millions of SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphisms across the genome, uh, across like hundreds of thousands of, of women uh, in different multi-ethnic cohorts, I just, you know, as a Native American, I was looking, well, how many Native Americans are in this study? Mm-hmm. Time and time, it was zero. And um, I learned that Native Americans, again, are not participating in genetic studies and their their treatment is effectively a, a form of erasure. They're either not included in studies and therefore we're not getting this wealth of understanding of health outcomes related to Native Americans, or even sometimes what happens is geneticists who don't understand that Native Americans are not just this unique monolithic identity, uh, just 
pull us all into the same like uh, data set, uh, ignoring our unique genetic histories. And then they'll like, just to get uh, an adequate sample size to detect association. And, you know, these inferences could be flawed. Like they're meaningless for us because they're they're not actually based off of meaningful measures of, of like who we are as people. Sure. And that's always hard to determine. And also there were just felt something a little bit uh, again, you know, I felt this 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 question that the pit of my stomach of what are we doing in data science when we're just thinking about collectivizing this increasingly larger aggregated data sets uh, and just pushing out a paper. The pipeline, I'm saying this very lovingly, but also sort of in, in, in a critiqued fashion about the field of data sciences, that you almost re- you remove the human element of of the science and the work, and you just start treating people as uh, uh, as as um, anonymous numbers, and you want to just increasingly collect more and more data, and that's that's kind of like the big hunger machine of the big data era is that. You know, you need more data to feed into these logistical models in order to detect these associations. But what ends up happening is you get these statisticians who are just thinking in terms of numbers, in terms of their ability to run a statistical test of association. But then it's almost like that the health underlying health question doesn't even matter. Like some statisticians might have their pet phenotype or condition of interest, but you know the pathway then between you know somebody using somebody's data and then how it actually translates to a direct health benefit mm-hmm. is not clear but instead you know we get more and more uh uh funding agencies that are collecting more and more data and preempting the collectivization data data sets but not asking the question of well if this is supposed to affect and benefit um uh health outcomes for people then why aren't we talking more about translating these these uh direct benefits to communities that are providing the data so, you know, that actually brought me to the study related to preeclampsia. There really aren't that many uh, community-engaged approaches related to genetics uh, that are long ongoing and existent still in Indigenous communities in the U.S. And it happens that the only the one that I really wanted to work with, which was like based in a tribal community, was related to preeclampsia. Okay. Um yeah, that's kind of how I got to that part of the story. Well, no, I, I really appreciate that background. That's, I mean, that's it's so interesting. You know, I, I, I mean, I think like when you're growing up, you're like, what am I going to do? And you, you always, I don't know if it's some product of like the fifties or something, but it's it's easy to imagine like that you're picking your job for the rest of your life. But in reality, that's just not how it works. It's this, you know, it's sometimes it's serendipitous, sometimes it's process of elimination. Sometimes it's this, uh, you know, there's some sort of revelation or a moment that leads you in one direction or another. And you go, oh, I'm going to do a nonprofit thing. Like I can do that. I'm really excited. Or whatever it might be, or, or scientists. I mean, I mean, again, I went to a, a liberal arts university. It was very privileged, of course, to be able to go there. And a lot of the students who go there were very similarly, but it was always funny, and this was not me because I'm not that intelligent <laughs> in that in this capacity. The kids that came up and were, you know, their whole life, like, I'm going to be a doctor, I'm going to be a doctor, I'm going to be a doctor. And then they take some philosophy class or whatever it might be, and their mind is blown. And all of a sudden, you know, they, they become a professor or whatever it might be. And you're just like, wow, you just never know what you're going to be exposed to and how that's going to influence your thing. And again, it could change even later. You could apply it in some 
some different way. Um, so anyways, I, I really appreciate you, you sharing that. It's, it's interesting, uh, the, the way that these things take us. Yeah, it really is. I remember in fourth, no, third grade or something like that, we had to draw a picture of ourselves in our intended career mm-hmm. path. I drew myself with like a little suit and a briefcase. <laughs> and I thought it was very clear that I was going to be a lawyer. And my teacher, who, I mean, she's such a sweet person. She's like, oh, you want to be a teacher just like me. Oh. And I, I love Did you teachers. Break it to teachers her? are amazing. I didn't. I just, I went ahead and just like nodded <laughs> along um, because I didn't want to insult her. Sure. And teachers are amazing. Oh my God. They are so amazing and overworked and underappreciated. But at that time I didn't want to become one. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, uh, yeah, my, my, my mom was a kindergarten teacher. It's like pay them a million dollars and they should be all treated incredibly. It's, it's preposterous. I know. I mean, just as a brief offshoot, I mean, when COVID happened, right, we all of a sudden we had this huge appreciation that parents had for teachers that didn't exist beforehand. And now we are returning back to quote unquote normal, right? Whatever that means. And now we, we're, we're not fixing all of the issues that, you know, caused this um, potential teachers to continue in the field or, um I don't know. No, it's a, we just removed the love of teaching. Yeah, it's, it's frustrating. Um, there's a there's a writer uh, for the Atlantic named Ed Yong who I have just enormous respect yes. for. Um, and around the beginning of pandemic, and to be clear, this is <laughs> caveat. This is not me comparing myself to Ed Yong, but we both sort of had these metaphors that we were writing about. Where he, I believe his was um, COVID was like a flood on a sidewalk, exposing all the cracks that were already there. And mine was like, oh, this here's your pop quiz. Like you've made 400 years of decisions let's see how you do. And we've, we failed all of them. It didn't go great. And it's everywhere from, again, the medical establishment and the decisions we've made and, and who's been marginalized to, mm-hmm. like you said, teachers, where every all of these parents immediately had to teach math for one hour. And they were like, it's exhausting. This is brutal. We should celebrate teachers and frontline workers and all this. And now we have not done those things but i do believe uh that we can that we can work on these things and that we can make progress so i want to hear about the native biodata consortium and again uh, i could not enjoy and appreciate more wherever you correct me i'm wrong so as far as i understand many i don't want to use the word most many tribal groups so far have uh I, i don't know if refused is the right word but um, have have abstained from using a lot of these sort of popular genetic tests that are out there, and and further to add their DNA DNA information to some of these broader public databases that have that have come along. Again, I'm just thinking about probably governance and, and profit, and I learned this word biocommercialism from reading about your work. Tell me about the project. Tell me why and why now, and and tell me why it had to be you. What did this? What does this solve for you to to do this work? Sure. Um, as everything goes with Native people, everything starts with a story. Please. <laughs> so um, I, I, I'll give you a background a little bit about the field, which is surprising that not enough geneticists actually understand their own fields. So like, it starts like actually in the 90s, there was a, a, 
a professor at Stanford University called the Kabali Sforza, and he wanted to sample as many populations around the world as possible, which sounds a lot like some of the large-scale diversity projects are ongoing today. Mm-hmm. And But he had, like, the if you look in publications, the way that he described Indigenous peoples was a little insidious. It was like, we have to sample Indigenous populations before they vanish. So not even caring, like, why Indigenous peoples were being disenfranchised from their lands and their cultures and the way of living. No, we don't care. We'll just ignore colonialism and not fight colonialism, except that it's going to exist and these people are going to become extinct, another word that was used. But we need their blood as quickly as possible because it's a race against time. And, you know, unsurprisingly, Indigenous peoples around the world didn't like being characterized in such a way as being deemed as only valuable to science and uh, as um, a means to gain access to their blood as a resource for continuing research that won't benefit them, right? So, um, yeah, unsurprisingly, I think at this point in time, uh, global Indigenous populations around the world uh, just started, you know, calling for the cessation of um, the Human Genome Diversity Project, HGDP. And then um, even like this, the, the criticisms of the project continued in the 2000s. And a huge concern then that still is sustained today is that like, what are you collecting this data for? Um, and it was even at that time, it, you know, the p- huge push was to make this data available openly and publicly available to increase the rate and support of innovations in science. But, you know, Indigenous peoples thought, well, who else is going to have access to this? It's going to be companies mm-hmm. and people with a biocommercial interest in profiting off of access to Indigenous genomes. And that is called bio-piracy uh, or bio-exploitation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, sure enough, what happened in 2005 is that HGDP published their, their, their paper that had their supposedly successful recruitment of global populations worldwide. And if you look at the indigenous um, peoples, like, and their geography mapped, all of the indigenous peoples that they recruited were in uh, countries outside of the U.S., in Central and South America. And that's because countries in the U.S., like, or sorry, tribal nations in the U.S., they actually have federally recognized sovereignty Mm -hmm. or a right to be able to um, self-govern as a peoples. So you actually have like now 574 plus uh, sovereign nations that are within the boundaries of the colonial Mm -hmm. U.S., right? Um, That all have their own tribal governances and their own ways of governing ways of life for their people. And, And, you know, there were a number of other controversies related to like in the early 2000s of non-Indigenous researchers um, doing questionably ethical things with Indigenous people's data. Like, for instance, in early 2000s, the Havasupai Nation sued the Arizona Board of Regents and Arizona State University because an Arizona State University researcher basically engaged in a promise to study type 2 diabetes in the Havasupai Nation and then turned around and started studying using those samples to study other things like schizophrenia and uh, population migration uh, theories that were culturally incongruent with their own origin narratives. Mm. And just using words like inbreeding and um, also just some really 
stigmatizing language that the tribe just didn't feel like they actually consented to. Um, And that lawsuit actually could have bankrupted uh, the three state universities. I think they originally asked, the original suit was something like $80 million, Mm -hmm. but then it got settled. And the, the result of that is like, you know, tribes, Havasupai Nation basically uh, banished any ASU employee from setting foot in their tribal lands for a period of time. And then this is already concurrently going on with a bunch of Indigenous people's concerns related to genetic data. Mm-hmm. So by and large, in the 2000s, U.S. tribal nations exercised their means of authority, sovereignty to not engage in mm-hmm. research, which meant that researchers, if they want to gain access to Indigenous peoples, had to go further south in the global south to to tribal nations, indigenous communities that weren't protected. So like, for instance, if you follow um, like how Brazil treats its indigenous peoples, it's not great. Uh, Many uh, governments uh, in the Central and South Americas uh, may fundamentally refuse to uh, uh, acknowledge the existence of their indigenous peoples. So um, you can imagine that researchers coming into the communities, if they didn't have to undergo, if they had like very lenient government uh, uh, policies and, you know, that some potentially questionable ethics could, could occur. And from the viewpoint of indigenous peoples, they called these projects vampire projects or helicopter projects because to them and their perspective, scientists would come in like vampire bats or vampires in the middle of the night and take their blood and then leave or come in helicopters one day and leave with all their blood and, and leave again. And this is really important because um, after the publication of their data uh, in 2005, the HTTP made the, the indigenous biomarkers publicly available on a website. And then you sort of fast forward a couple of years to like 2007 to 2012 when you had the uh, the emergence of companies like direct-to-consumer ancestry companies like 23andMe and AncestryDNA that started utilizing their access to this public available resource for their own product development. So AncestryDNA was just sold last year to venture capitalist firm Blackstone for $4.7 billion dollars. And then every holiday quarter since 2017 has had like a billion dollars in profit. So every holiday season, right? When people like want to gift their beloveds. Yeah, right? Figure out who you are. Um, It's like, it's really interesting because Ancestry admits in their own vlog that their number one question is, why isn't my Native American ancestry showing up? So already like tying like the hubris of peoples and the fundamental misunderstanding of what indigeneity means to this scientifically uh, scientific test that supposedly reifies those false narratives of indigeneity, right? And making a buck out of it. Of course. I'm so cynical about these things because I think people need to understand what they're giving up mm-hmm. uh, when they're contributing to the DNA mm-hmm. to these to these companies. They're willfully paying a hundred to two hundred dollars to become contributors to research studies that they have absolutely no idea like what is being used sure. for like what they're being used for and even for the continued uh, profit bottom line of the companies. Like they're just going to use your data to continue adapting their own product algorithms that you're not going to benefit from. Sure. <laughs> anyway, so, you know, there's this huge interest in, in collectivizing indigenous biomarkers, um, not just for gen- genetic ancestry companies, but also drug companies. Mm. 
Because now drug companies are really interested in figuring out, well, what are the next novel genetic variants associated with disease? And all of like the lowest hanging fruit has already been picked. Like common variants related to common diseases have already been heavily studied. Uh, variant, uh, variants that associate with Mendelian disorders or heritable diseases and traits, those have been studied with uh, earlier genetic um, tests for like the last few decades. What really people are, uh, companies and uh, researchers are looking for are like, what's the next variant? that is going to unlock our understanding of like cancer and diabetes. And where are we going to find it? It's going to be in small untested populations like indigenous populations. And these are the same people that have been exploited. It is really interesting, by the way, when the Native Biodata Consortium started, I'm kind of skipping ahead here in my own timeline of things, but it's really interesting because we, we officially incorporated in 2018 as a nonprofit company and as a nonprofit research organization. And when we started and became a little bit more known uh, nationally and internationally, we had a number of some of the largest drug companies reach out to us and ask us, you know, what kind of data we had on indigenous peoples and whether they wanted to, quote, partner with us, right? And of course, what we wanted to ensure was that Genetic variants that are specific to indigenous communities that are going to be, for which are going to be formed the basis for intellectual property, that those intellectual property rights are retained by the tribe, not by the companies, right? And another thing that we wanted to, uh, we were asking them is like, well, what uh, phenotypes or conditions are you interested in studying? They were only interested in studying the things that affected the massive population, not the the conditions that affected the indigenous sure, peoples. Sure, that's where the money. So, exactly. So this, you should tell you, like, if our goal of collectivizing indigenous DNA is to benefit the most, then we are still going to fundamentally ignore the individuals that also still suffer that are contributing the DNA to begin with, right? This is why I questioned the phrase democratizing data or democratizing science, which, you know, democratization of science is like this popular buzz phrase that's been going on recently. And people don't understand or or critically question what it means. So first of all, (laughs) democracy is not really something that we should be aiming for, especially when we consider the garbage fire of 2020, right? It's not going great. This democracy experience. I mean, no. I, I don't. The American- I don't remember what the Winston Churchill quote is, <laughs> but you know, to to, pair, to to butcher it, it's essentially like it's 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 the best of like all the worst options. But also, like, it's not going great. We could use a different word <laughs> or or idea. Yeah, whoever like equated democracy with you know something that means something to be fundamentally good is it hasn't hasn't paid attention to history. It's also like um, there are different forms of democracy, sure. like the uh, Athenian democracy and also the Haudenosaunee uh, Confederacy. Like Indigenous peoples had their own form of democracy, sure. right? But you know, democracy like is like you know the benefit to the majority. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it's, you know, how can we extract the data from a very small portion of, of peoples that have suffered the worst in terms of colonial factors? And let's continue extracting and exploiting these individuals as long as we're benefiting the most. But this is supposed to be considered a good thing. It's horrible. I think people need to stop 
in equating diversity and inclusivity with equity because it's not the same thing. Like we have all of these DEI or EDI efforts in terms of like trying to ensure that we have uh, more inclusion and participation of, it, of of peoples of color in like all levels of academia and different fields, right? But, you know, that means nothing if you're not also providing equity to that representation. Hey, it's Quinn. I'll make this quick. Sifting through the news is a slog. Finding the signal and the noise is damn near impossible. And if you do, what can you even do about it? I'll tell you what you can do. Literally, every week, I'll tell you the most impactful thing you can do. In just 10 minutes a week, you can get smarter, feel better, and make radical change for yourself, your family, your investments, your company, and for the world. Join tens of thousands of other leaders and subscribe to our free weekly newsletter at newsletter.importantnotimportant.com. Get the most vital science news, exclusive analysis, and action steps for free. That's newsletter.importantnotimportant.com, or just click the link right in your show notes. Back to the show. Well, and that's the point about who's in the room. It's not just like we have failed to do the input side, right? Which is which is inclusivity is not just like hiring people or statistics and like your 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 PR of your company. It is literally who's in the room, who gets to participate, and why, and what's the what is the hierarchy there? And you know, not just not just what story is told, not just who gets to tell the story, but who gets to decide who gets to tell the story. But then you also, like you're saying, the equity set, you have to consider the output, which is like, okay, that's great. Imagine, imagine we had a pandemic that affected everybody on the planet, right? And the end was everyone. Um, you still have to consider, and this is what we're seeing, and this isn't specifically tied to, to any particular indigenous population or, or, or any population, but this uh, idea now we've got uh, these, these uh, two main drug companies that developed the mRNA vaccines, but develop them in participation with uh, at least one federal government that threw billions of dollars at it and contributed their own scientific expertise. And now you've got, yes, it did help the most and everyone, but who is profiting from it is exclusively exactly who you'd expect it to be. And now they're refusing to both share those profits, but also the patents that are driving those profits. And so once again, the low-income populations of the planet, the most marginalized, 4 billion people are not receiving the output, which is where is the benefit, right? And where is the equity in that? If those people aren't protected, if, if only certain, you know, capitalistic corporations are benefiting from it, then 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 we're doing it all over again. And it seems like that's the same thing, if, if I'm understanding it correctly, with this idea of, no, we're, we're not going to give you the, the DNA because you haven't proven that there's an equity for us on the other side of this. Exactly. We cannot equate equity of participation with equity of benefiting. Mm -hmm. And and this is what we're we're really calling to to push. Like if you're going to create technologies based off of our people's Mm -hmm. DNA, then we need to talk about a more direct path in which we benefit. What has happened is that scientists will enter indigenous communities and they'll overpromise something that they can't deliver. They'll overpromise on the delivery of genomic and precision medicine Mm -hmm. and health. It is not unlike, let's see, so a New York Times reporter went back to the Christiana, which is a central Amazonian community in like 2007, and he basically asked them, um, 
you know, what was it that scientists promised you um, in exchange for access to your genomic data? And the people stated, well, we were promised, you know, innovations and access to medicines that was going to treat the things that were, were, were killing us in our communities. And, you know, the reporter was like, well, did those medicines ever arrive? Like, no. But the reporter did state, though, that their um, access to the genomic information that was being sold by Coriel Cell Repositories for like $75 or $85 a vial, uh, <laughs> which, you know, is not dissimilar to the profit by which uh, 23andMe and Ancestry and all these other companies have had based off of their, their people's DNA, because um, they're one of the um, HGDP uh, indigenous populations. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. You know, there's the, one of the reasons why U.S. Indigenous peoples have at least voiced to us at the beginning of um, the Native Biodata Consortium and why they don't participate in federally funded research is that in the U.S., data that is collected from federally funded research has to be collected into a repository. Again, with the underlying assumption that it will um, advance um, health and, and science and the rate of innovation, right? But what this does is it takes Indigenous people's um, DNA, if they participate, and it makes that those data decisions related to access outside of tribal hands. Tribal leaders basically say, we don't want to, we don't want to do that. We have a sovereign right to be able to have a say in what happens to the data that is collected from us. And we have a say in terms of, of, um, you know, even to, um, uh, to not have our DNA being involved in studies that have absolutely no, no interest for us, like for instance, ancient DNA studies, which are not really of interest to Indigenous people. So, you know, they were just fundamentally not engaging in research. So what we thought was of a good alternative solution was to create a tribally managed biological and data repository. So if tri- if tribes were interested in working, um, in, in partnering with researchers, then they would entrust that data a true, a tribally managed entity, and then researchers would have to come to us or that tribally managed entity in order to gain access to the research, which means that they have to undergo tribal uh, research governances and processes for approval in order to gain access to that DNA. So at least then the tribes actually have a say in what types of data is being accessed. And also in terms of also saying like what, what people they actually trust and it's, we've been able to do this because at this point in time, we have the largest cohort of scientists who are Indigenous, who come from communities. And we have been able to leverage that new talent and expertise. And those individuals um, primarily comprise our directors, our board advisors, um, and also the researchers that we work with. So we really, really uh, rely on working and building these connections with with researchers and communities that understand that this goal. And we're really grateful that We've been so successful in the, in the past couple of years. Um, and how I get caught into it was more the fact that I just happened to have be in the right place in the right time in terms of, of foreseeing the needs to have Indigenous scientists who also had this bioethical implications of, of data. And um, so I do wear a lot of hats and I use every single one of them in my work. Um, and I do have more work than I have hours of the day, but I love it. It is ultimately fulfilling. But if you asked me, um, you know, 
five or so years ago, if I was going to be uh, entering the space of of becoming a scientist slash entrepreneur, like I would have thought you were pulling my tail or something. <laughs> so, and and you can please feel free, of course, to to say uh, not interested in sharing or we can't share or whatever it might be, or, or or even as far as just the you know speaking generalities, but. Now that the consortium uh, exists and there is cooperation and there is uh, governance and there are uh, both philosophies and methodologies to to how um, I, I imagine you are encouraging participation, garnering trust, and and thinking about if and if so, how to use the data that has been collected with permission with that trust. Are there projects that are actively being worked on from that data? And how do you go about, I guess, identifying what uh, both the priorities and also what is going to be um, most beneficial uh, in, in every way to the tribes that gave uh, and the people within those tribes that, that uh, participated in giving their data? Sure. <laughs> that, that's a huge question. So just collecting like, and next? housing data... Yeah, no, collecting housing data is one challenge, right? But then um, what you do with that data is an entirely different question. So a biobank, at its very minimum, can just be a freezer holding samples, right? But if you want to do something useful for it, you know, you have to have a lot of other um, ethical and legal frameworks that are in place. And that's actually what we spent the last two years doing is working with tribal lawyers and tribal leaders and um, a non-tribal firm that is related to intellectual property just so that we can build up legal protections and um, standard legal language in terms of like ensuring that data sharing policies are actually like equitable for tribes. Because what, what we noticed as we were starting to talk about partnerships, particularly with universities, is that universities, obviously, like they have institutional review boards that are supposed to like ethically govern how they work with uh, with human uh, participants in research. But those entities are very centered on protecting the university's right to access um, and their right to um, claim intellectual property. So for instance, one of the major universities that we work with, they have a policy in which they will refuse to cede review to any other um, institutional review board, including other tribes' research regulatory processes. So they're already stating, you know, it's our way that approves it or no, nothing, or, or you can't basically, you know, use us as a partner in your in your research grant. And then, you know, there's something called the Baydol Act in which um, basically it protects universities' uh, right to claim intellectual property on technological innovations. So universities have this legal protection for, for IP, but not tribes. Tri- if a tribe doesn't have their own legal laws in place, then, you know, they're just left unprotected. So we, we're, we're really like starting from scratch in terms of ensuring that tribes retain ownership of intellectual property from their own people's DNA. And that's actually where we have spent the last one to two years is our own legal education. Um, and then we're also been able, because of COVID, we're, we're also extending into this public health sphere. We are in, wanting to ensure that samples collected from community members are related to COVID, that those samples are held locally and tested locally. What used to happen, uh, what still happens, unfortunately, um, is that 
when the pandemic started, uh, many tribes, most tribes didn't have their own local testing facilities and they would have to either send out their samples to like a, a public health resource or even to uh, companies that were creating these um, COVID detection assays, right? And that actually put genetic data in proprietary hands <laughs> that, you know, they had no um, a sovereignty over and no protections over, and that's their genetic data. So now we don't know how many companies have had access to genomic information from indigenous peoples. And, you know, that was just part of the pandemic. So what we created was a a tribal public health surveillance program in which we are ensuring that that data is housed locally, tested locally, and also ensures that we don't have this huge lag period in which somebody has to wait like two weeks for the test results to come back. And meanwhile, maybe uh, unfortunately infecting other people. Now you can turn around those results a lot quicker because, you know, the sample is just down the street as opposed to several states away. And then you can perhaps mitigate the spread and transmission of, of the virus. So that's one thing that we're, we're working on. We're also working with a number of tribal communities that want to start their own biobanks. It doesn't have to be um, human um, samples. It could be things like creating their own seed biobanks. Yeah, there's actually a lot of interest in that. Like, for instance, uh, museums have had archives of, like, indigenous samples of plants. And because, you know, big agriculture has created these huge monolithic cultures uh, monocultures, right? There's a there's a huge threat to like genetic diversity. So, like for instance, um, the 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 banana plant that we have is actually under risk of of um, of perhaps being totally obliterated uh, because I think I think it's the Cavendish species of, of banana plant is really open to susceptibility of disease. I remember reading something about so that, which li- is basically like I don't think people realize bananas are going bye bye. Yeah. And so now, you know, agriculture is looking to these museum archived samples of indigenous plants to sort of, you know, reintegrate back into their species. But that's, you know, uh, uh, a form of exploitation of indigenous knowledges, right? Um, there's a battle. So, like, there's this huge interest in, you know, indigenous well, seeds. Same thing as, you um, know, California dealing, you know, now going, oh, wait, it turns out uh, we should have been listening to indigenous people and how they manage forests for thousands of years because... Oh my! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Indigenous science is always considered like this fringe thing or this alternative hypothesis. But when it services supposedly Western sure. science, then we're deemed useful, which is another form of sure. extraction and exploitation of yeah. our knowledges. So <laughs> it's all integrated. Like for us as Indigenous peoples, like we don't have like these weird arbitrary definitions of what constitutes human versus mm-hmm. non-human. We steward all types of data, which is mm-hmm. awesome, and it also speaks to fact that as a geneticist, I am so annoyed with the prioritization and preemptation of, of genomic data as being like the, the means of, of studying health disparities because only like up to 50% of diseases are, are heritable. A lot of it has to do with um, uh, non-genetic factors that relate to disease, like structural sure. barriers related oh, yeah. to disease, environmental factors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're not studying these no, things. Of course not. Um, there are no. systems that like, we okay. have designed that are so inescapable. Like even the idea of them are inescapable for so many marginalized peoples in the U.S. and and, and elsewhere. Um, that you know to to not consider them is just gross negligence. Like you can't just look at the DNA. I mean, I, I think of. Again, this is a totally different version, but the research, oh gosh, I'm totally forgetting the gentleman's name, uh, who um, does the Blue Zones research. Have you heard about this? 
he, he's worked with National Geographic forever and basically has identified the places around the world and and the unifying sort of, I don't remember what it is, seven or eight um, sort of building blocks where the people live the longest, but also the healthiest, essentially, and how they can be in totally different places, but these are the things. And one of his uh, initial identifications was the things, uh, like you were just saying, but almost the inverse, what makes these folks live the longest, healthiest is only something like 20% genetic and 80% of it is all of these other factors that that in the West, we are both happy to ignore or invert and just totally ruin from junk food to sitting to, uh, you know, isolating people, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, no, that's actually accurate. It's uh, I go into uh, conferences all the time. Like for instance, I just presented at a Society for Clinical Pharmacology conference, and I basically told them like we are over promising on things that we can't deliver. We are over prioritizing genetic information and their contributors to our disease, and really we should be thinking of structural factors. And the statistics I cited to them was like in 2018, so right before the pandemic, uh, the Indian Health Services spent 2.4 times um, less uh, per patient than the national per capita spending for wow. healthcare. So I'm all like, um, yeah, when COVID hit, right, the communities that were hit the hardest were were Black intersector communities and also tribal communities. And tribal communities, uh, just to seek preventative healthcare, some of them have to drive three, four hours in one sure. way just to be able to see a clinic. Sure. So I'm like, maybe we should be thinking more along the structural uh, access to, to disparities in health than just claiming everything to be genetic. And that is my critique as a geneticist. <laughs> sure. But I mean, you, it's, I'm so inclined and part of this is having young children who do this to me all day, but it's, it's this, this methodology of just going, why, 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 until you get to the bottom of things where you think wider or with more nuanced and layered context. But, you know, like you're saying, uh, over-promising and under-delivering, I mean, per, we've been talking about, and it's been on the cover mag, personalized medicine for, for, ha- for how long now? And maybe it's time to take a step back and go, maybe the reason it's not working isn't because of uh, you know these these hyper expensive personalized medicines, and it's these enormous structural barriers and food deserts and all of these different things and and the air pollution in the water uh, that are that just nullify anything you're going to do with medicine if it works in the first place. Personalized medicine is such a misnomer. Anyway, we're writing a paper on just this. We just had a, con- uh, a conversation about this before this phone call. So. Um, personalized medicine makes sense from a clinician's point of view in that clinicians, their their point of care is each individual. So they're considered with one individual's um, uh, personal care and their data. Fine. To everyone else in the world, though, um, that accesses health data, like it's a misnomer. So personalized medicine became precision medicine. And um, precision medicine, especially related to genomic medicine, is basically defining um, biological groups by at-risk categories, like who is at risk for this disease versus who is at risk for this other disease, right? And then those, when those strata, when those groups are defined by racial and ethnic categories, then you get into racial medicine, which is opening up a whole floodgate of of issues because like one um, indigenous person is not the same genetically as another indigenous person. One white person is not the same as another white person. A Latino person, it could be genetically diverse from another Latino person. These are just like really broad social categories that are dangerous when you over-biologicize Well, I mean, our conversation with uh, Lauren Underwood, Underwood, uh, Representative Underwood about, um, you know, about the Black uh, 
people who identify as women, as, as birthing persons, I'm trying to use the correct language here, uh, are nationally two to four times more likely to die in the year after childbirth. Uh, but in her home state, it's six times as likely, right? And that's not a biological thing. That is a societal construct that we that we have built and is probably working to, to plan. It's not something that's broken, that's designed this way. And by trying to, like you're saying, trying to get into the, the racial medicine side is not that way. Otherwise, when you know uh, Serena Williams and Beyonce published their stories about their their miscarriages and 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 Serena Williams almost bleeding out uh, in her in her delivery room after she had her baby, you know, if there was a biological answer, a, a medicinal answer, she could have afforded it and it would have been available. But that's not what that was. It was doctors who don't listen to her and a whole system that's failed her, uh, you know, for generations. And we just keep repeating that. Yeah, exactly. I'm not going to say that you know these. Uh, that genetic ancestry is not useful not. for some things. It's just it's just not useful for everything, and especially building like scientifically reifying these social categories of of basically human diseases without also considering the social underlying causes mm-hmm. is just irresponsible and is illogical. We really just should be thinking about these societal factors related to disease. So another one, I'll give you another one, like. Uh, Native Americans, a common negative stereotype about us is that we are supposedly genetically predisposed to alcoholism, right? So the the NIH has funded, um, has published over 200 papers over the last several decades about looking at genetic variants associated with alcoholism in Native American communities, mm-hmm. right? So they're like searching already with, with this like circling towards this um, preempted uh, 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 story that they want to create about us, right? Mm-hmm. But but it turns out, if you look epidemiologically, just on data, most tribal nations in the U.S. actually don't have higher rates of alcoholism compared to other populations. And in fact, in some cases, their rates of alcoholism is even less. Um, <laughs> but, you know, this, this stereotype continues to be perpetuated against us, and it's so demoralizing and demeaning. And it's so difficult to escape. Again, just like the practical systems themselves are, are difficult to, to escape. I mean, a huge uh, sort of canary in the coal mine for me and, and and how I try to understand and think about things and listen and process was the incredible book, uh, The New Jim Crow. Uh, just, uh, it's just, you just go, oh, the this is how this is designed. And and any of these biological stuff, again, not that it's not important and not that it it, it uh, can't be an inclination to other things, but, but it's almost the last piece of the puzzle because if you don't undo these other things, it doesn't matter. You know, it's like when you say like, oh, black kids are are twice as likely to have asthma. It's like, okay, but why? It's because they live next to coal plants, you know, and that's because we made housing unaffordable and we redlined everywhere. And like, you can just keep doing this. It's it's not that difficult, but apparently it is. Um, And so it's it's understandable when 574 tribes say, we're we're not giving you your DNA, man. (laughs) Like, there's there's no equity here. There's no benefit. Um, It's really important that everybody has knowledge of these issues uh, and the underlying ethics behind all this, because it effectively, well, ultimately affects everybody. Mm-hmm. So these issues related to data privacy and consent affect not just Indigenous peoples, not just uh, peoples of color, but all people. So there have been a number of studies that have shown that um, for people that don't understand all the intricacies of, of research consent forms, that there's um, there can be a confusion between 
research and also clinical care, especially like, for instance, if a patient is going to go into a university hospital Mm -hmm. or a clinical setting and um, they're asked to be recruited into a medical study, right? Sometimes there's a confusion about, there's actually a huge amount of confusion sometimes about that their clinical care is tied to their participation in research. That is a huge problem. Mm Okay, that's also considered clinical genetic tests, right? Mm -hmm. When your provider um, recommends that somebody takes a clinical genetic test, what they're doing is they're providing access to a third party, the makers of that clinical test, to provide access to one's individual genome or everyone that they're biologically related to. But that's a commercial entity. And it's really fascinating because um, they're really... Very few clinical genetic testing companies have opt-out policies, data sharing opt-out policies. Um, I'm, I'm just thinking of, <laughs> and you're still- without, without, without sharing too much, I'm thinking my wife and I had, had an impossible time making our children and had to do a lot of IVF and, and there was a, a phenomenal amount of testing involved and we never actually discovered why we had such a hard time. We were very lucky to eventually be able to um, uh, make, make some babies. Um, but I can't imagine the forms uh, that I eventually was just like, yeah, fine. Like whatever gets us to the answer. I, I cannot even imagine what I've signed away at this point. Yeah, I had that same issue. Um, and I know how valuable uh, companies find uh, supposedly Native American DNA. Um, I, I was at the American Society of Human Genetics meeting a few years ago, which is like the largest uh, worldwide conference of a geneticist in the world. Mm-hmm. If it's not the largest, it's like the second largest. And I had a question related to 23andMe and some university partnered research. So I went downstairs to their booth, their exhibitor booth, and I got a hold of the technical advisor. And I like, he basically looked at me and it's like, oh, you're Native American? Can I give you a free test to, to everyone, all your friends and family? Um, like, oh my God. They wow. Way to live. reduce, like, they're you know. Like, they're not being subtle. <laughs> way to reduce the science... I know why, way to reduce the supposed scientific colleague to the color of my skin, yeah. right? And and utility for the in company. The and and exactly, exactly at the freaking genetics conference. Yeah, and, and this happens all the time where twenty three and me and ancestry and other uh, genetic studies will just set up booths at like tribal fairs, and um, in some cases they'll prey on like missing and murdered indigenous women. Like, hey, you want to find your missing relative? Provide us your DNA. We'll deposit into a database or a data set um, so that it can help you find a solution better. Hey, everyone. It's Quinn. Have you ever looked around your job and thought, what are we even doing here? If you've ever wanted to take your skills to more impactful work, to do world-changing work, let me tell you, now's the time. With just one click, you can find a job that does that work at importantjobs.com. Important Jobs is for journalists, students, engineers, software developers, accountants, designers, nurses, research assistants, people who want to work in clean energy, consumer products, health tech, agriculture, and artificial intelligence. And if you work for a company or organization already doing that work, you can list your open roles at important jobs for competitive rates and get them in front of our entire community. Reinvigorate your career on the front lines of the future at importantjobs.com. Back to the show. I, I could have this conversation all day, but your time is just so so valuable to, to so many other people. Um, I, I want to just talk about one thing that's a little less 
little less, what do they call it these days, hard science, uh, before we get into really specific action steps that our community can take, whether they identify uh, and, and are part of a, a, a tribe anywhere in the world, or um, they're someone who looks a little bit more like me. And, and the answer might be like, leave us alone or do this, but we're game for whatever you say. But before that, because we are also in this moment of there, there are some some battles going on, both I think internally within a lot of people, but also, you know, obviously in the courts about governance, governance and identity over our own persons, over our own bodies, right? Because like you were saying, who we are isn't just our genetic makeup. It is our culture. It is, um, uh, but forever we framed it ridiculously, right? So simplistically as nature versus nurture, but it ignores um, all of the different inputs and variants of those and how they combine. And, and it ignores, um, you know, this idea of like, it, it's it's how we feel in our bodies. It's it's how we live. It's who we live with. It's how we were raised. The languages we we may have spoken when we were growing up or we speak now, speak now. It's, it's, it's who we choose to surround ourselves with. So um, I, I know you've written a little bit about um, this idea of uncoupling DNA and identity and, and what they mean to us and how we are judged by others and accepted. What does what that what does that mean for you now in this crazy period where the news seems to change every day and, and you've got fights over um, you know, can trans kids go in the bathroom or not? And and how does that apply to your work? And I know this is kind of a different pivot, but I, I did I felt bereft not engaging in this because it does obviously matter to so many people. Yeah. So this is so complex. I know. I, know. I feel like it could be an entirely different discussion. We can do that. If, it and really, I'm happy to do that. But I, I know it really does matter. I mean, for one thing, we're not just one thing, yeah. right? We belong to multiple communities. And we should be embracing those identities um, to the extent that it embraces us back, right? Um, a huge part of people wanting to claim genetically um, uh, creating indigenous claims is a, a sense of wanting to belong somewhere, right? That, that's kind of what we're, we're talking about is this human um, want to, to connect to something somewhere. And this is possibly why we get a lot of um, fetishization of indigenous cultures from people of European descent, because um, you know, there have been papers that have substantiated this. It's not just my own anecdotal experience, although that also adds to it. Like, you know, Europeans, um, you know, they don't feel, uh, they feel like a, dif- they don't feel like a, a concrete tie to their ancestors. It's too diffuse in terms of the number of heritages from which they 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 came. So they feel like mutts in a way. And that's their wording, not mine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't know, there's something ti- intriguing about being tied to the exotic or something that's really tangible geographically like indigenous cultures, right? Um, and so there's a, there's a lot of instances in areas in the U.S. of people wanting to falsely claim indigeneity. Like for instance, in the Southeast, um, and South, which has a huge complex uh, racial history com- uh, related to all the different identities. So, you know, just using that as a microcosm for people just wanting to belong somewhere, um, you know, many people look to, to genetics as an easy fix. And I say that as mm-hmm. an easy fix because um, I used to volunteer for the Native American Indian Association of Tennessee, which is a nonprofit there. And mm-hmm. um, people would call in daily 
saying, oh, I took this genetic test and I'm 10% native. Can I get a tribal enrollment card so that I can get a free house? So there's some insidious, um, you know, wants to claim indigeneity because there's this perceived um, gain there. But Mm -hmm. then also there are just individuals that don't want to do the work of genetic genealogy because some people will stay ask like, well, how, what is the legitimate way to claim indigeneity? It's like, well, family history, family records, going through census rolls, and oh, too much work, which is also horrible for me to hear as a Native person. Like, oh, great. Like, you want to be one of us so badly, but it's so much work for you. You're going to have, if you actually were a Native American, you'd find it really difficult to exist as a Native person. I'll just tell you that, considering how much backlash we get just for merely existing. So maybe you should um, rethink that. But going back to the larger question of belonging, I think sometimes people look at genetics as too easy of a solution to to create these senses of belongingness, but really they should just be thinking about the communities that they already exist in um, and really thinking about embracing those because there's there's numerous layers to our identities. And, um, and when you think of it that way, then over-biologicizing it removes the beauty and the diversity of all those experiences. So I don't know. I'm just hoping that people really think about um, creating community and connections in places that are legitimate and more proximal to them rather than trying to falsely create these claims. I love that. Thank you for that. That's a very thoughtful answer to a ridiculously complex question. Um, I, I, I thought of something, and this is a little offbeat. One second. There's a, uh, there's a book slash cookbook that's available. I think it's a couple years old um, now called The Cooking Gene. And it's by a gentleman named Michael Twitty. Uh, who's an African-American gentleman, but um, also identifies, like you were saying, like we're, no one's a monolith, right? And, and no one wants to be identified that way. And he talks about basically how did food come from all these different countries and cultures and peoples in Africa and make its way to the American South, but also what does it mean for him and his history and all his different places, but also the ways he identifies as an African-American man, as a gay gentleman, as a Jewish man, like, and it's one of the most beautiful books I've ever read, and I recommend it to anyone. So, um, and and it just talks about delicious food the entire time. So there's just that as well. <laughs> but I thought you would appreciate that because, um, you know, the 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 biological uh, you know biomarkers are, are there. But his point is like, yeah, but what is it? What else does it mean? And what else makes me me? And what else makes food important to people? And how we nourish people through stories and and things like that. So. Anyways, I can't recommend that one. All right. There's a point, there's, sorry, there's a point to be made sure. here in that even these categories, these social con- categories of, um, of, a, of a peoples is arbitrary because it's based off of a definition based on one point in time, a cross-sectional point of history. And people move all the time. Um, just to give you, for instance, uh, the Navajo Nation, um, as it's defined now, right, is kind of a recent colonial definition based off of when we were recognized by the federal government. And that's just been perpetuated since then, because before then, as a peoples, we recognized that we were a construct of many peoples. So um, we used to have over 400 clans, unfortunately, due to genocidal factors, it's now more like 100 to 200. But we have, we acknowledge, like, when, for instance, one of my four clans is Mexican people's clans. Um, there's Zuni clan, there is a Ute clan, right? And it's, these are part of the umbrellas of what constitutes Navajo peoples, but it recognizes that we came from other places and we have incorporated all these different identities of other peoples in our spaces. And it's the same thing for food, to use your analogies. 
what constitutes um, Southern culture is just an amalgam of a much different identities and times and spaces. And it's just that we happen from this point or an arbitrary point in time to like just over categorize it. So sure. I love yeah, that. Thanks. Um, okay, listen, we're going to get you out of here in a second, but, but, you know, one of our sort of our bread and butter is these, these action steps as we put them. So I'm going to sort of leave this to you. How can our community again, which is a widely varied community of professionals and students and, uh, you know, all these different folks from, from so many different places comprise of so many different things, but they're unified in the sense that they, they give a shit and they like to take action and support good things and good people. And that is, that is definitively you, uh, Crystal. So what, how can they best uh, support your efforts and your work and the projects you're working on? Give us, I mean, I'm talking like, what is the URL? Like, what are we doing here? Uh, one, you can donate money to the Native Biodata Consortium. We're a nonprofit. Awesome. Uh, we would be happy to receive your um, tax-deductible donation. But also just learn and read things that you're signing. Okay. Um, you know, these these issues related to like genomic privacy bleed into data privacy, which uh, and algorithms lead into like um, data, social and informational justice. How many people read the EULA, the end user license agreement for Facebook? Mm-hmm. And, you know, no similarly, <laughs> yeah, similarly, you should be paying attention to the informed consent forms that you're signing when you're um, at the doctor's office and somebody asks you to um, sign on to research. And also understand that your DNA is not just your own right to privacy, but also everyone you're biologically related to. So sure. we really need to think in terms of not just steward data ownership, but also data stewardship, sure. and also just understanding that we are connected to other people's besides our own spheres. I, I love that. Thank you. I, I couldn't put together a more thoughtful sentence if I tried. That is so helpful. What is uh, what is literally the place that people would go to donate to the consortium? Oh, go to na- uh, www.nativebio.org, and then Perfect. you'll find a link at the bottom. Awesome. Well, we'll put that in the show notes too. Last question for you before uh, I, I get you out of here, Crystal. Um, what is a book you, to preface, we have a whole list on Bookshop, which supports independent bookstores of our guest recommendations. It's a specific question. What is a book you've read this year that's opened your mind to a topic or an idea or a question you hadn't considered before, or that has actually changed your thinking in some way? So first, um, I had a book in mind before you had the caveat of this year. First book, I mean, Native I don't American care. DNA. Say, say all the books you want. <laughs> Native American DNA by Kim Talder. Okay. Like, if you're interested in genetics and indigeneity, that's the book to go okay. to. This year, I picked up uh, Data Feminism Ooh. by Catherine D'Ignacio okay. and Lauren Klein. Okay. I love this. Um, we've heard of Big Dick, Big Dick Energy, right? Oh, a thousand percent, um, yeah. <laughs> And they draw characterizations between like the masculinity for collectivizing this data mm-hmm. as like just this big push, a big data era, big dick energy. Yeah. I don't know, just calling into like the humanity and, and uh, justice relating to these data science decisions. And I love it. I love it. That is awesome. I'm definitely going to dig into them. We'll put, we'll put them in the show notes and we'll put them on our list where everyone uh, can find them. Uh, last one, where can our listeners uh, follow you and your work online, Crystal? Uh, most of my, uh, I, I'm a private person, but I do have a Twitter profile. So okay. if you just do Twitter at K-S-T-S-O-S-I-E, K-S-O-C, you'll find me. So it's not sushi? Are you sure? Not. <laughs> you can pronounce it sushi all you want because I don't get to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Um, Crystal, I I know that your time is immensely valuable and, and you have given so much to us here. Um, I, I, I do hope and I believe we've done 129 of these that our community can 
can pay back the time uh, you've given us today uh, through, like you said, learning and listening, a greater understanding of the landscape, um, but also hopefully this uh, proclivity that, that we tend to show towards supporting good people's work. So let's let's do that, folks. So thank you so much for your time and, and I sincerely appreciate it. Thanks to our incredible guest today. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at importantnotimp. Just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at Important Not Important, Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us, you know the deal. And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on. Thanks. Please. (laughs) And you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jamming music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. 